morning again. Would you bow with me once more? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to gather as, as your children, as your family, in your name, and to hear from your word. We thank you, Lord, as well, that it is your Holy Spirit, the one Spirit, the one faith and one baptism, with you as our one Lord, who binds us together and brings us together, Lord. And so we pray, Father, that this morning that you would continue to do your work by the Spirit and, and continue, Lord, to unite us as your family in one faith and purpose as we glorify you and as we serve you and make your name known to the nations. And so we pray, Lord, that you would speak through this your word, and I ask that you would speak through me, your servant. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now this morning I'll begin with a well-known story. You may have heard some version of it before of how on one balmy day in the South Pacific, a Navy ship came across an an uncharted island far from anywhere. Not expecting to see any inhabitants on this island, they were quite surprised to see three huts on the shore with a thin wisp of smoke gently rising from one of the huts. Upon arriving at the shore, they were met by a deliriously joyful shipwreck survivor. And he said to them, I'm so glad you're here. I've been stranded all alone on this island for over five years. The captain replied, If you're all alone on this island, then why do we see three huts? Well, the castaway replied, Oh, well, you see, I I live in one and I go to church in the other. But what about the third hut, insisted the captain. To which the castaway replied, Oh, that's where I used to go to church. And yes, he was all alone. Now, of course, we we all laugh at that. And we laugh at that because, as with all humor, one of the reasons we laugh is because within the joke is an element of truth. And the element of truth within this joke is actually not funny at all, but actually terribly sad. So much so that it grieves the heart of the one who is the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Because it speaks to the reality that though in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed for his future church in John 17, 21. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, may they be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. And so we see here that though Jesus prayed for the unity of his body, the church, for for all believers to come. He prayed that they would be so perfectly united that it would be representative of he, the Father, and the Spirit, the triune God, that they would be one, just as Father, Son, and Spirit are one. And yet, as we look at the history of Jesus' church, we see that it is littered with countless examples of schisms, infighting, divisions, and church splits. There are more denominations in the world today than I could even begin to count. There are hundreds of denominations. And we see in all of these things two key factors. First, we must acknowledge our own sinful flesh. And the second we must acknowledge is our common enemy, Satan. You see, all sin is firmly rooted in selfishness. It's it's when we put our own needs, desires, ambitions, and often prideful egos ahead of Christ and what he has commanded us and desires for us. Satan, of course, knows this, and he is a master of cunningly exploiting our weaknesses and differences in order to drive a wedge into the church with the aim of doing the maximum damage possible. 
Those of us who have been a part of this church family for the past 25 years, we know this incredibly well, painfully well, this lesson. But it wasn't just this congregation that experienced divisions and upheaval. It was over a span of 10, 15 short years that through the 1990s and into the early 2000s, most of you will be well aware that there were more church splits going on in our province and across our nation than anyone could keep up with. Satan was simply having a field day and, church, and churches everywhere were, were dividing. Churches everywhere were in upheaval and Christ's church was hurting badly. But perhaps most sad of all were all those within all of that who were so hurt or disillusioned by it all, by what was happening, that they fell away not only from the church, but from Christ himself. And I can tell you that many of them were teenagers of my generation, some of whom were my close friends who fell away not just from the church, but from the Lord. Now there is a famous saying that goes, United we stand, divided we fall. You've all heard it before. United we stand, divided we fall. It's interesting that the origin of this quote is traced all the way back to the 6th century BC, where a Greek storyteller that you may have heard of before named Aesop is the one who is uh, credited with this quote. United we stand, divided we fall. And it's, of course, found in one of his famous Aesop's fables named The Four Oxen and the Lion. This is how the story goes. The four oxen and the lion. A lion used to prowl about a field in which four oxen used to dwell. Many a time he tried to attack them. But whenever he came near, they turned their tails to warn another, so that whichever way he approached them, he was met by the horns of one of them. At last, however, they fell a quarreling among themselves, and each one went off to pasture alone in a separate corner of the field. Then the lion attacked them one by one, and soon made an end of all four. United we stand, divided we fall. This parable, or fable, perfectly illustrates one of Satan's primary strategies against Christ's church. Divide and devour. Scatter the flock and pick them off one by one. The Lord Jesus even forewarned his disciples of this exact thing that Satan was going to attempt to do right before his betrayal and death. He said to them in Matthew 26, 31, Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And if you want to connect the dots of this a little bit further, Satan tries to do the exact same thing in every relational context we can think of. He tries to do it in marriages, he tries to do it in friendships, in families, and yes, he does it on larger scales as well, even entire nations. And we don't have to look very far south to see how massive the wedge is being driven. To what end, we have only yet to wait and see. Like a roaring lion, Satan wants nothing more than to divide and devour. But not only us, he he wants to destroy something more than that. He wants to destroy our witness of Christ to the unsaved world who desperately needs him. And sometimes, rather than fighting him, our common and mortal enemy, we end up fighting each other. And written in the historical records, the last soldier to die in the First World War was an American soldier, 23 years old, named Henry Gunther. Henry was a private with the American Expeditionary Force in France. 
He was killed at exactly 10.59 a.m., November 11th, 1918, exactly 60 seconds, one minute, before the armistice took effect. Gunther's squad, part of the 79th Infantry Division, encountered a roadblock of German machine guns near the village of Chameau de Vent de Mavliers, eh, French. <laughs> I tried. But against the orders of his, ser- of his sergeant, he charged the guns with his bayonet. And the German soldiers saw him coming, and they were already aware of the armistice that was about to take effect, and they did not fire. They tried to wave him off. But Gunther, in his zeal, kept coming. He was going to win glory that day, and eventually, as he, as he neared the guns with his bayonet pointed straight at the German soldiers, they fired. He was gunned down and died instantly. His divisional record states, Almost as he fell, the gunfire died away, and an appalling silence prevailed. How tragic. How tragic that this man insisted on keeping on fighting when peace had already been won. It had been signed. No one else needed to die that day. And how much more tragic to continue fighting when through the blood of Christ, peace has been purchased. And this is why Galatians 5.15, Paul writing to the church of Galatia, said to them who were dealing with all sorts of issues and turmoil, he said to them, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. And and in this we see again Satan's work. And this destruction can be multifaceted. And one of which can be our witness for Christ to the world. I've heard people in this town directly say, Why would I want to become a Christian? Why would I want to become a Christian when they can't even get along with each other? Why indeed? It's a valid question. Because you see, the effectiveness of our witness to Christ for Christ to the world, it has always been directly linked to the degree of brotherly love and unity practiced within the body of Christ. I want you to listen again to Jesus' prayer in the garden on the night of his betrayal. Listen closely. He says this, I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. May they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. You see that last line, the outcome of this unity? So that the world will believe you sent me. Jesus linked the unity of his followers with the world believing. You see, Jesus linked this directly to him, the Father, and each other, the world believing. We can't separate the two. Earlier in John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus also said to his followers, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So let me just ask you a question. Do you want to see souls saved? Do you want to see people come to salvation in Jesus Christ? Good. I love that. Someone said it. We'd better be saying yes to that. That, That's the heart of God. That is the heart of Jesus Christ, that souls would be saved. And so if we are wanting to be in line with the heart of God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus, why he came to the world, he said, I came to seek and to save That which was lost. He came for the lost. He came for us. And so if we want to see the same, then it's simple. Love each other. And not just superficially, not just when it's easy to love people, or only the ones that we get along with or always see eye to eye with. No. Listen to this instruction to the church in 1 Peter 4 verse 8. 
He says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Right out of the gate, you read that verse, you hear that verse, and you recognize Peter's not saying this is just like lovey-dovey, we all get along, kumbaya kind of stuff. He's saying, no, this is directly linked to because we're all sinful people, and love is the antidote. So listen carefully. So long as there's people in the church, so long as there's people in the church, there will be sin and selfishness too. Now that might come as a surprise to you, but it shouldn't. It really shouldn't. You know why? Because you're here, and so am I. So am I. You see, we are all more than capable of sin and selfishness. But that is why the antidote is not, well, just get rid of so-and-so, or you change your mind to fit mine, or else I'm not talking to you, or, or I'm just going to leave and start my own church that's perfect. And if you do decide to do that, second you sit down, it won't be perfect anymore, right? Because <laughs> you're there, I'm there. It's, it's our flesh. We always must walk in humility, knowing that the righteousness we have is not from ourselves, it is from Christ. And we walk humbly for that reason. And so, the answer is not, you know, get rid of everyone, or you've got to see eye to eye, or I won't love you. No, the antidote is love, true love, agape love, deep love, the kind of love that Jesus poured out with his lifeblood on Calvary's cross, because it truly covers a multitude of sins. In fact, it covered the sins of the world. Now, is this easy? Is it easy to love those you don't see eye to eye with? Is it easy to love those who your personality clashes with? No, it's not easy. But was Jesus' cross easy? Was his loving you and me deeply easy? No, my friends, it was not. It cost the Son of God all of his glory, all of his divine rights, all of his dignity, all of his security, all of his agony, all of his blood, yes, all of his life. It cost Jesus everything to love us. And yet, he did so willingly. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus gave it to us willingly. And so now Jesus says to us, his bride bought and paid for with his blood, the recipients of that deep love, he says simply, love each other. Love each other the way I love you. Love each other deeply, and the outcome will be the world will know that you are my disciples. And the world will come to know that I was sent by the Father and believe. And so what does this look like now in more practical terms? Let's turn to one of Jesus' teachings on this subject in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, and verses 23 to 26. If you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. Here in this passage, let me just give you the immediate context as you turn there. Jesus is, of course, preaching his famous Sermon on the Mount. And in the, in the previous verses, verses 17 to 20, he has been explaining to them that keeping the perfect law of God, it goes much deeper than surface actions. In fact, it goes down to the very thoughts and motives of the heart. And then in verses 21 to 22, he uses the example that, you know, it has been said, you know, do not murder. But he then goes on to say that hatred towards one's brother is the equivalent of murder in the eyes of God. And so he's upping the ante, saying it's not just that if you physically actually murder your brother, in your heart, if you're harboring it, 
To God, this is murder. This is the same. And so then, building off of that, we read this in verses 23 to 24. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Now, there's a few details here we need to be aware of. The gift that Jesus is talking about here is within the Jewish sacrificial system, the one prescribed in the Law of Moses, whereby a burnt offering, a burnt offering of some type of animal or bird according to your means, but some type of living creature typically, must be given for the atonement of sin upon the altar in the temple. Now, this instruction to the Jewish ears of that day would have sounded incredibly strange to his audience. And one of the reasons being, I want you to take note of this, Jesus doesn't say, leave your gift at an altar. He says, leave your gift in front of the altar. He's talking about one altar, one place. Because you see, there weren't a multiple number of altars scattered throughout the nation at every synagogue. It wasn't so convenient like we have churches today where you can just go to the church down the street or this church or that church. No, there was one altar for the entire nation. And this one altar was the only place that you could give your burnt offerings for the atonement of sin, and that was in the temple in Jerusalem. And so you can well imagine that with one altar servicing the entire nation, it was in constant and high demand. And so, like a well-oiled machine, the priests had set times every single day. They had a schedule. They ran it like clockwork that there would be daily burnt offerings on behalf of the entire nation. And then working between that schedule is where everyone else, the common people, would line up and wait their turn to present to the Lord their private burnt offerings on behalf of themselves and their family. And so, unlike for us, when we place the offering basket or pass the offering basket on, sun, on Sunday mornings, in Jesus' day, giving an offering was not something you did quickly or easily. This wasn't a 15-minute thing. In fact, during the busy times of the festivals like, like Passover, people would literally wait all day, and sometimes people would wait multiple days for their turn to give their gift. Not to mention that for the people listening to Jesus, this is in the northern Galilee region, directly north of the Sea of Galilee. It could be a multiple days journey just to get to Jerusalem in the first place, walking. And so now with all of this as the backdrop, imagine that you've traveled for days and then waited all day on top of that for your turn to present your gift to God at the altar. You're finally there. All of this effort, all of this time. But then just as you get there, You remember, and you feel strongly convicted of the fact that you and your brother back home have an unsettled issue between you. And then you remember Jesus' words. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. What do you do? What do you do? Do you just... You've been waiting all day. You've you've made this big journey. Do you just ignore it and just go ahead anyways? Or maybe do you justify yourself by saying, you know what, I'm going to present my offering, and yes, I will go and be reconciled right away after. I can tell you one thing for certain. 
No one wants to leave their spot in that line. No one wants to leave their gift at the altar and go and do what Jesus instructed. And yet Jesus makes it clear that by giving your gift to God, but all the while ignoring God's command for us to actively seek reconciliation with each other, is to effectively not only waste your time, but also your offering. Why? Because God is looking for gifts not given from a conflicted or disobedient heart, but from a pure heart. And the outward action of giving is only significant if it reflects a deeper inward reality. Otherwise, we're just going through the motions. And going through the motions are utterly meaningless from God's perspective. King David speaks of this, Psalm 24, 2-4, where he says this, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in the holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Again, the hill that is being referred to is Mount Zion, which is where the temple stood. And the holy place is referring to the inner sanctuary where the altar was. And David rightly understood the need to not only come with clean hands, speaking of the external, but with a clean heart, a pure heart, the internal. And this, of course, David wasn't saying that he was, that he was in any way sinless. But what he was saying was that to the effect that he was, to the best of his knowledge, he was blameless before the Lord. That means he, he had made every effort to reconcile any wrongs that he may have done against anyone else, as well as vice versa, forgiven any wrongs done against him before giving his offering. And likewise, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, Paul instructs Timothy, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with all those who call upon the Lord with a pure heart. Now, notice how Paul states that these things don't just happen on their own. First off, sin needs to be actively fled from. So he says, flee those things, run away from them. Flee from from sin, run away. But then he says, don't just stop at that. Don't just run away from sin. Then he says, pursue the good things. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Pursue these things. It is an active endeavor. And so we do this. And this is where we don't just do this alone. Take note of what he says. We do this pursuit of righteousness together with those who are calling upon the Lord with a sincere heart. And so here's the thing. What Jesus is prescribing here and what we must do, it's not easy. It wasn't easy for the hearers of his day, nor is it easy for us. But it's his teaching. And so this requires soul searching. This requires, yes, inconvenience. It requires humbling ourselves. And yes, it requires effort. But this is why Ephesians 4.23 states so clearly our call to worship, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. Now I know, I know that that sounds like a lot of work and not a lot of fun. But Jesus wants us to understand something that is so core to the character and nature, the heart of our God, our Father. It is this. He is all about relationships. God is all about relationships. 
And so he is not at all interested in us still trying to be all buddy-buddy with him as though our relationship is great and good and everything is fine, but all the while disobeying his clear command to actively seek out to be reconciled and to live at peace with one another. And now I'll I'll put in another caveat here. Sometimes it happens that, yes, you have made every effort to be reconciled. And the other party still chooses not to reciprocate. And in this instance, you are free and clear to go ahead and present your offering. Because as the Bible says, inasmuch as lies with you, live at peace with everyone. And, and sometimes you've made every effort. And you've done as much as lies within you and more. And someone still doesn't want to live at peace with you. Then, in that challenging circumstance, we have more provision. Because then we are free and clear to simply move into what Jesus teaches on this, to pray for those who oppose you. Pray for them. And he goes further and says, bless them. And without saying too much more on that, let me just say, what an incredible and powerful freedom we have to do just that. We don't have to fight against anyone. We can pray for and bless those who oppose us. And, and I just know that when I learn to pray for, for, for anyone who I don't see eye to eye with, anyone who, who is opposing me, the very first thing that happens is it doesn't change the other person, it changes me. It changes my attitude, my perspective, and my heart. And most of all, when we pray, we're releasing control of the situation from ourselves to God. And trust me, that's a very good thing. <laughs> Because chances are when we're in control, we're just going to make things worse. But when we give control to God and follow his instructions and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, all I can say is I'm always amazed how over the years I look back over my life and different scenarios, I'm always amazed at how God can change minds, hearts, and yes, even restore relationships. But it starts with our obedience. It starts with us taking Jesus at his word. And, and to actually leave our gift at the altar, whatever that looks like to you, it's a different context today, but whatever that looks like to you today, what it really is getting down to is make it our urgent and top priority to go and be reconciled to your brother or your sister. And God will always, always, always pour out his blessing and power and grace upon his children when they seek to do so in obedience. There's a powerful example of this from the 19th uh, the 1940s, and going back further to the 1930s in Germany, as Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party took a stranglehold upon the nation. One of the ways they did so was by commanding all churches, primarily the Lutheran church, the state church of Germany of that day, the Lutheran church, they made everyone swear an oath of loyalty to the Fuhrer and to unite under him as the head of the church, effectively, so that he could control them. And those, of course, who went along with the order, well, they had a much easier time of it. But those who refused to say, no, Jesus is the head of the church, we're not swearing loyalty to any man, those who refused, they faced extreme persecution. In fact, in almost every family of those who resisted, at least someone died in a concentration camp. And so, when the war was finally over, you can well imagine the feelings of bitterness and animosity that ran so deep between these two groups. And finally, the church elders from both sides decided that they had better get serious about obeying Christ's command, and so they arranged to meet together for a quiet retreat. And for several days, before they met and talked with each other, 
Each person spent time primarily alone in prayer, examining his own heart in the light of Christ's commands. And then when they finally came together, something incredible happened. One elder named Francis Schaeffer, who wrote of the retreat, had asked a friend who was there, What did you do then? What did you do when you came together? And the reply was, We were just one. We began to confess our hostility and bitterness towards each other and to God. And then the Holy Spirit began to stir so powerfully that tears began to flow. And once bitter rivals embraced and love so filled our hearts for each other that it dissolved all of our hatred so perfectly, it was as though it had never been there in the first place. This, my friends, is the power of God. And in matters great, such as this example, or matters so small that they barely need a mention. This is our Lord Jesus' deepest desire for his beloved bride, his church, to walk in his way, to follow his teaching, to be united in his one spirit, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, that we may truly be one in him for our good, his glory, and that the watching world may come to know and believe. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you with great humility because you are perfect in all your ways. And Lord, as we look at our own lives, we recognize in the light of your word how far short we have fallen of your glory. For Lord, we are sinful and we battle with the flesh. But Lord, as we humble ourselves before you, we thank you that as we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And more than that, Lord, as we, as we confess and as we place faith in you by your spirit, you so graciously enter in and begin changing us from the inside. You change our hearts so that, Lord, it's not about the external action anymore, but that you would work within us so that the external action reflects what is happening within That is what you're interested in, Lord. Man looks at the outward appearance. You look at the heart. And so, Father, this morning, by your Spirit, I simply pray and ask that you would examine each one of our hearts. That, Lord, as we, in a sense, are before your altar, would you examine our heart that if if we do need to leave a gift at the altar to go and seek reconciliation, I pray, Lord, that you would give us the grace to do that and to to do it humbly, to do it well, and that your Spirit would just pour out your grace and love upon that. And Father, we know that you are all about relationships. And we know that the enemy is so active trying to drive wedges to destroy and devour. But Lord, we pray against him in Jesus' name that you, by your power, would pour out your grace and love so freely and abundantly here in this church family that it would flow outward, Lord, to the watching world around, that they would say, wow, those people at Clarny Mennonite, they just love each other. I don't know about anything else, but they just love each other. And that something in that, Lord, would be so winsome, so attractive, that people would say, I want that. I want what they have. I want the love that's overflowing in that place. And so, Father, we pray, open our hearts to obey, to receive your love, that we would love you in return, and that 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 love would overflow abundantly. Thank you that this is your will and your plan, and you are so ready to do this for us, your children. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.